All right, good morning, Calvary. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42 this morning as we continue our teaching series. We've been looking at the Psalms and really like making the statement uh, that it's okay to not be okay. As I was thinking about where we're going to go this morning, uh, once again, I was thinking about the camps I speak at this summer. And it, it seems to me that I continue to tell stories about my struggles getting home from those camps. I talked about mountain construction the other week. Uh, about a month ago, I was at a camp and had this little issue where uh, I'm up in the mountains and I'm at the camp and it's time to head home. And what's true of most of these camps is that they're in a place where you don't really get cell phone service or any coverage whatsoever. And so what I typically do when I come home from these camps on these mountain roads is when I'm at the camp and there's Wi-Fi, I plug in my home address and that way the GPS, it'll take me home even after I leave the camp and don't have cell phone coverage. Well, this particular week at this particular camp, I thought to myself, I don't need to plug in the address, I've got this. And I don't know about you, but anytime I say I got this, it tends to be the case that I don't got this. So I, I get pulled out of the camp and I think I've got it and then I hit this fork in the road. And that's the moment where I wish I had plugged it into the GPS. I could have gone right, I could have gone left. I decided to go left and that was the wrong way. It starts to lead me down this mountain road and I suspect at some point it's gonna get me out of here but it appears I've taken what should have been a 10 minute drive. I'm an hour and a half into the drive. I have no idea where I am. I have no idea if I'm going the right direction. I have no cell phone coverage. I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I am done with driving. I'm going on the mountain road, I feel sick to my stomach and I'm not sure which direction I'm gonna go. And I was thinking about that experience this week as I was preparing for this message. Thinking about the experience of what it means to be held tired and frustrated and lost and unsure about where this is actually going or when this will possibly end. I was thinking about those experiences because this morning we're gonna talk about something that I think for those who have experienced it will feel quite similar. See, this morning I wanna to talk to you on the subject of depression. I wanna to talk to you about what the human experience is of experiencing the depth and the weight of sadness that we call depression. And I don't know about you, but when I speak to people who describe their experience with depression, I always anticipate them to tell me that they're sad that they're, they're frustrated, that they're bummed out, that they're brokenhearted over something. And all of that is true. And yet the depth of that experience seems to include so much more of what I was just speaking of, of being tired, of being overwhelmed, of feeling lost, and most significantly, not being sure if this will ever actually end. See, this morning I wanna to talk to us about depression. And here's the good news for anyone in this room who is walking through depression. The scriptures are not unfamiliar with your experience. In fact, we're gonna look at Psalm 42 this morning and see the depth of the expression of human depression and sadness and brokenheartedness. And yet we're gonna see a God who enters into that. So if you're here this morning or listening online and you are walking through depression in your own life, if that's part of your story, I believe the Holy Spirit of God has a word for you this morning, an encouragement, a blessing for you. And if you're not walking through depression, if that's not part of your story in your life, I once again believe that God has brought you here, not for a word to you, but for a word through you, that you would be equipped and energized to minister to the people in your life who are walking through depression. See, once again, as we turn toward the scriptures, we're going to see that it is not silent. The Bible is not silent on this issue. And we're gonna have an opportunity to be ministered to through the word this morning. It begins in Psalm 42. In most of your Bibles, I'm reading out of the NIV here, there's a little heading over some of the Psalms. And this particular heading for Psalm 42 reads this way. It says, for the director of music, a mask of the, song of the sons of Korah. 
So the sons of Korah appear to be who wrote this particular psalm. And the sons of Korah are priests whose job it was to minister through music. In other words, they're the ancient Israelite version of our worship team. That's who the sons of Korah are. They're the people who make music. They're the people who sing. They're the people who make this beautiful artistic expression before God. And then what you'll see here is that this is not called a psalm, but rather a maskil. Now, maskil is this notoriously hard Hebrew word to translate, and that's why it's actually left untranslated in most of our Bibles. But it appears this word maskil comes out of the Hebrew root word that means to instruct, to teach. So in other words, what we're going to look at this morning is a psalm, a worship song before God. But the purpose of this worship song is to teach and to instruct God's people. And I believe the purpose of this teaching and this instruction is so that we would understand how to interact with our God in the darkest valley, in the deepest place, in the depth of our discouragement, in the depth of our depression. And so this morning, as we go through Psalm 42, would you know that this is a psalm built to teach us how to deal with the depth of the hardest things in life. It goes on in verse one, it says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. In other words, this is a psalm that is meant to teach us. And what it begins to teach us at the beginning is that just as the deer is desperate for this one thing, this water that will sustain it, so my soul pants after you, God. You can see right away that the burden of the psalm is not intellectual, but rather emotional. What you'll see weaving all throughout this psalm is this deep sense that the psalmist understands God in his mind, but wants to know the experience of God deep in his soul. It's not an intellectual psalm, it's emotional. And I think for us this morning, as we dive into this subject, we need to talk about emotions for just a moment to make sure we have a biblical and not secular view of emotions. Let me say three things about emotions as we kick off into this psalm that is deeply woven through with emotions. Number one, I want you to know emotions are a gift. They are a gift of our God. He has created you, he has wired you to have emotion. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Imagine life without emotions. Imagine your kid's birthday party or your wedding day without emotions. Imagine losing someone close to you or going through a grief or a loss without emotion. It would be robotic. It would be mechanical. And it would not be a life worth living. Listen, emotions are a gift. Number two, emotions are good. We want to know that emotions are good. It is good to feel deeply. It is good to experience this world emotionally. Sometimes even in Christianity, we kind of get this idea that the real goal is to detach ourselves from emotion. We kind of slip into a stoicism where we think real serious Jesus followers never cry or never emote or never get too worked up. But that's not what I see in the scriptures. Like this idea that emotions are somehow something we're supposed to push out of our lives is a philosophy out there. It's just not biblical Christianity. Emotions are gift. Emotions are good. But let me also say this. It's important this morning. Emotions are not God. And we live in a culture that says the most important thing about you is what you feel in any given moment. What you feel, what you experience, what's going on on the inside should direct and control your life. That's the cultural ethos we live in. But we need to say clearly this morning that my life is not defined by what I feel. My life is defined by what God says. That's what defines and controls and directs my life. So emotions are this good gift from God, and yet they are not God itself. And what we need to do is separate out that we are going to feel and experience this world and yet not treat our emotions as the ultimate authority in our life. 
See, this is a psalm that's going to instruct, and it's shot through, not with things to think about, not with high ideas we need to get our minds around, but with a deep emotion that we ought to experience as followers of Jesus. It goes on in verse 2. It says, My soul thirsts for you, God, the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? So what you see here in this psalm is the psalmist is crying out, he says, my food has been my, tear, or my tears day and night. You see a poetic imagery, a poetic description of someone who is not sleeping, who is not eating, who is sobbing all through the night. If a friend came to you and said, I haven't eaten in days, I haven't slept in days, all I've done is cry, all I've done is weep, you would recognize that there is a sadness that goes beyond the usual being bummed out that we have. It is a depth of sadness and brokenheartedness that we see here in the Psalms. And once again, we need to stop and linger on this and recognize that what the psalmist is expressing is a normal part of the human experience. Again, let me put it three ways. Number one, that sadness is a normal part of faith. It's normal. And again, I think there's a certain part of Christianity that wants us to believe that if I'm sad, it somehow shows I lack faith. Or if I'm sad, it somehow shows that I'm not a very good Christian. But sadness is a normal part of the experience of faith. It's a normal part of the experience of life. Listen, sadness is a normal part of faith. And I'll say this, sadness is a healthy part of faith. It's a healthy and right and good thing to respond to the brokenness of our world with sadness, to the pain and the injustice and the chaos that happens in our society and happens in our life. It is a right and good thing to respond with sadness. And I would submit to you that if you are never sad, if your heart is never broken, if you are never moved to grief by the pain and the brokenness of this world, that indicates that there might be something going on in your soul that you need to tend to. Sadness is a normal part of faith. Sadness is a healthy part of faith. And if somehow your Christianity has slipped into the idea that you always have to show up with a smile on your face, you always have to say everything is good, you always have to think everything is good and you can't ever express sadness in your life, you've been led astray by an idea that is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity has plenty of space for sadness. It is said in Isaiah that Jesus would be a man of sorrows, someone who understands the depth of pain in this world. So sadness is normal, sadness is healthy. But now let's just be clear here this morning, not all sadness is depression. Not all sadness is depression. And there is this instinct, again, in our culture to medicalize every feeling, to medicalize every experience of life. And so you're sad or you're discouraged, or you're down for a little while. And instead of just recognizing the depth of brokenness in the world we happen to live in, people want to put a label and say, well, that's depression. It might be. There may be some folks in this room who are walking through depression who have not yet identified that. But I also want to be clear that sadness is normal. Sadness is healthy. And our instinct to want people to take our pain seriously, so we call it depression, so we medicalize it so that when people actually take our emotions serious is a distortion in our culture. Listen, there is depression, and I believe Christians, serious followers of Jesus can have it. And yet not all sadness is depression. But what we see here in this verse, verse 2 and 3, we're going to put it back on the screen because I want us to look here again, is someone who is walking through a depth and a level of sadness that I think could rightly be characterized as depression. Again, you see here in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. For the living God, where can I go to meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night when people say to me, where is your God? And again, what we see here is the depth of sadness that this individual is going through that he's expressing before his God. 
But there's two words I wanna point out to you. You'll notice the word soul there. Soul is a spiritual concept. It is an immaterial part of our being. It is the part of our being that makes us in relationship with God. So he talks about his soul pants after God. And yet then he talks about his tears. Tears are a physical part of our reality. Tears are a physical part of our body, the flesh and the bone that we actually live within. You've got soul, the spiritual part. You've got tears, the physical part. And as we look at this individual who is walking through the depth of depression, I think it's important for us to say this, that depression is both a physical and a spiritual experience. That depression is something that happens in your body and happens in your soul. And we cannot separate those things out. Depression is something that happens in your mind, in your physical body, that there are physical symptoms and experiences that you have, but then there's also something that happens in the depth of your soul. And if that's true, if it's true that depression is both a physical and a spiritual experience, then it is also true that healing from depression requires physical and spiritual solutions. It requires physical solutions and spiritual solutions. Perhaps on the physical side, we could talk about going to a doctor or addressing things like exercise or sunlight or diet. Uh, on the physical side, it might even mean someone who is going through postpartum or having hormonal imbalances. There are all sorts of reasons why you might be depressed that are physical, tangible reasons. And healing from depression is going to mean addressing those physical reasons. If it's physical and spiritual, we cannot ignore the real things going on in our body. And similarly, we cannot ignore the real things going on in our soul. The spiritual disciplines of prayer and of Bible reading and of fasting and of confession, of being in a church community, of seeking after the Lord and taking Sabbath. All of these pieces are a part of what it means to heal spiritually from the depression going on in our bodies and in our souls. And the two errors many people make when they're approaching depression, and I wanna speak these two errors over you if you have someone in your life who is walking through depression right now. The two errors those of us who are not walking this journey tend to make is one of these two. Number one is we minimize or deny the physical reality of depression. And so we say things to people like, well, you should just pray about it. It's not that bad, you should just get over it. Everyone has hard days, just deal with it. We try to cheer people up. We try to take a superficial approach where we just hope they can pray about it and show up at church and maybe talk to someone and it'll go away. And I believe in prayer and I believe in talking with people, but I also believe that depression has a physical element, meaning we're gonna have to address physical symptoms and physical things going on in people's bodies. All of the things I just listed, you know, the number one thing when I talk about depression, people ask me about is medication. They ask me, can Christians take medications for depression? Is that a good thing? Is that a right thing? And my answer on the authority of the scriptures, what I see in the Bible is that absolutely unequivocally, it is okay to take medication to help the ailments in your mind and your body. Like biblically, I just see no prohibition against us taking a medication that helps us through depression. Now, scientifically, medically, that's a conversation to have with your doctor, with your physician, the science of the brain keeps changing. Even this last week, there was a massive study that came out on antidepressants and how it interacts with the brain and what we used to think and what we now think is an unsettled science. So you walk with caution, you walk with wisdom, you talk with people who know these things well. But biblically, I see no problem with seeking a medical solution to a physical problem. Error number one is we minimize or deny the physical reality of depression. But then here's the second error we make. Error number two is we minimize or deny the spiritual reality of depression. 
See, if there are church folks who just kind of say, pray it away or don't worry about it, we minimize the physical. Our secular culture does the opposite. It says, if you're depressed, the only thing going on is chemical issues. The only thing going on is your body. See, our secular world today sees you as nothing more than a bag of chemicals, of uh, of flesh and bone. There's nothing spiritual about you. And we as Christians have to reject that. We have to say that there is a spiritual reality to depression, that there's a spiritual reality of us getting right with God. And we can manage symptoms, but until we get deeper down into the soul to figure out what's going on in our heart, it's never going to be alleviated. See, if the first error is ignoring the body, the second error is ignoring the soul. And if we want to find healing from depression, it's going to require this. Healing from depression requires attention to your body and to your soul. I want to invite you, if you're walking through depression right now, to pay attention to both. Maybe you've been neglecting your soul. It's time to pay attention to that. Maybe you've been neglecting your body. It's time to pay attention to that. And if you're helping and shepherding someone, a son or a grandson, a spouse or a friend through depression, would you help them draw attention to those two areas of their life, their body and their soul? It goes on this way in verse four. It says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. So I want to identify what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is not saying that he is actively and currently joining in on worship with God's people. He's not saying that he has a practice and a pattern of getting together with God's people and singing. He's saying that he used to. He used to go to the house of God. He's not going anymore. He used to go to God and be in worship and be around God's people. He used to lean in with the people of God, but he no longer does. And I think this is instructive for us. I think it's instructive for us because our instinct, our impulse, when we feel depression, when we feel discouragement, when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, the human impulse is withdrawal, lean back, Stop going to church. Stop going to small group. Step out of relationship that you have with other believers. But the truth we must know this morning, if you are walking through the depth of depression, is this, that healing from depression happens in relationship. It happens in relationship. It doesn't happen on your own. It doesn't happen by you withdrawing from the people of God, withdrawing from the church, withdrawing from your small group, withdrawing from your friends. It happens as you lean in. And it is so counterintuitive because when we are in our deepest, darkest hole, we want to withdraw from everyone, but we must do the opposite of what we feel. It's like if you've ever been through major surgery, you know, when you're recovering from surgery and the doctor tells you lay low, lay low. And then suddenly at one point, the doctor begins to say, you need to start moving. You need to get up. You need to eat. You need to move your body. Healing is actually going to come through you moving your body. And every part of you just wants to lean back and rest because you're tired. But the doctor says, no, no, healing comes from doing the counterintuitive thing. The same is true with depression. The counterintuitive thing is to lean into relationship, to small group, to showing up at worship, to getting a cup of coffee with a Christian friend who can invest in you and build you up. But that is exactly what is required for us if we want healing. The psalmist here is backed out of relationship. He's backed out of the people of God. We need to do the exact opposite, healing from depression happens in relationship. It always happens in relationship with pastors who care about us, with counselors who walk with us, with small group members who pray for us, with friends who gather with us, with a church that gathers for worship. It goes on in verse five. It says, why my soul are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. 
This is one of my favorite verses in scripture, and it may not seem like a coffee cup mug, right? Like you put this on a coffee cup and celebrate this one. And yet I just think this is so in tune with my experience in life. Like, you know what he's doing here? He's going like, why soul are you so downcast? Like his brain is talking to his soul, going like, why aren't you getting with the program? Why aren't you getting this? Why aren't you doing the thing I want you to do? And I want to identify that this experience is so normal. I want to identify that this internal conflict between how we wish we would feel and how we actually feel is a normal part of faith. This conflict where we know we should feel peace, but we don't feel it in our heart. Where we know we should feel joy, and we don't experience it. Where we want to forsake our sin, but we end up not doing it and we feel drawn toward it. Where we know we should lean in with worship, but our heart just doesn't seem to be there. That is a normal part of faith. It's a normal experience. And again, if you're just going, this is so strange, like this feels like my life, my soul is downcast, but I don't want it to be. I want us to know that's normal. And when something is normal, what it frees us up to do is just confess it, to say it, to speak it out loud. What the psalmist is doing here is being so clear that there's something wrong. There's a mismatch going between his brain and his heart. And he's saying it out loud. And for the third time in three weeks, I want to say this because I believe this is a starting point for all spiritual growth and all healing, that what you do not identify will only intensify. Like when I don't identify that my brain and my soul are not matching up, when I don't identify that I'm walking through heaviness, that I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, it will only get worse. And the first step to healing is always being able to identify there's something wrong. My spirit is not right. I show up at church and I don't seem to want to worship. I show up at small group and I just kind of disengage. I don't want to be in. My soul doesn't feel the joy of my salvation. Something is wrong. Because here's the truth. When I don't identify it, it only gets worse. But once you say it, you can start to solve it. Once you say it by the Spirit's power, you can start to solve it. The first step to healing is always acknowledging it, admitting it, saying it out loud. My soul is downcast. I don't know why. My brain and my heart are not matching up. And yet I'm going to say it. I'm going to acknowledge it. And once I say it, I can start to solve it. Verse 6 says this, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. From the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. So, so he gives this image, this picture of what his life feels like. And I think this is the perfect description of someone who's walking through depression. He describes these waterfalls coming down and it's breaking over him. Imagine standing under a waterfall and the water is just pounding on you and it's just crushing you underneath its weight and there's no end in sight. It just feels like it's going to go on forever. This is how the psalmist feels right now about his troubles. It's crushing him. He doesn't know when it's going to end. It feels like the weight just keeps coming down. The hits just keep coming and this is how the psalmist identifies the experience of his depression, the experience of the depth of his despair. He feels like waterfall is coming down on him. And yet there's a key word I don't want you to miss in this text. I want you to notice it doesn't say the waterfall is coming down on me. Here's what it says. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. And who's the your here? The your is God. Like in other words, in the midst of his discouragement, in the midst of his depression, in the midst of feeling like the hits keep coming, he doesn't say this is random and unfair and ridiculous, God. He says, this is on you, God. 
You're allowing this. You're doing this. These are your waves. These are your breakers. And so the irony here is that he is accusing God, but he is also trusting God in this. He's saying, what is happening to me, the depth of my soul and the crushing experience I have right now is not random. It is of God. He is allowing it. And the psalmist doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't try to explain it, but he simply knows that what happens in his life is not random. And I want us to know the same. Whatever depth of depression you are walking through, whatever experience you have that just feels like it's crushing you over and over again, it is not random. God is not asleep at the switch. He has not fallen asleep at the wheel. He knows exactly what is happening in your life. And my goal this morning is not to try to explain it. My goal is not to be Jesus's lawyer here to try to say, oh, well, no, here's why it's happening and it's actually okay. What I wanna do rather than try to explain why something would happen in your life is simply point to the nature and character of God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. You've heard it before, hear it again, that God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Listen, if you cannot trace why God would allow you to go through the depth of depression, the depth of pain you are walking through right now, I will not try to explain it, but I can point to the heart of God who is for you and who is with you and who is on your side, who will never leave you nor forsake you, who is loving toward you. In fact, that's what it says here in verse eight, the psalmist after saying, this is your doing, God. You're putting me through this. You're making me experience this right now. And verse eight says these words, by day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Notice what happens here. God, these are your waves. These are your breakers. I'm suffering because you're allowing me to do it. And yet the next breath, the psalmist says, it's your love, God. You're with me. You are the God of my life. See, the psalmist understands something that I want each of us to understand this morning, particularly this is for you. If you are walking through depression, if you know what it is like to feel like the waterfall is crashing down on you, can I speak two things over your life this morning? Number one, God loves those who are struggling with depression. He loves you. He adores you. He is quite fond of you. He doesn't just love you, he likes you. He likes hearing your voice. He likes being around you. He delights in seeing you live. He delights in your life. God loves you. And number two, it says that he is the God of his life. He is with me. I want to speak this over you, that God will never leave those struggling with depression. His promises that he is with you, his promises that he will not forsake you. He will never leave nor forsake you. He is the faithful God. That is what we recognize in this psalm. Again, the psalmist is going to accuse God. He's going to say, these are your waterfalls. These are your breakers coming over me. And yet you love me and you will never leave me. And if you ever for a moment doubt that God loves you, if you ever for a moment doubt that God is with you and for you and will never leave nor forsake you, I do not want you to look inside of yourself. I don't want you to look toward your own heart. I don't want you to think it through and try to reason from yourself. I want you to look at something objective and outside of yourself. Romans chapter eight and verse 31 reminds us of God's love. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if you ever doubt that God loves you, that he is for you, that he is with you, that he is fond of you, that he's on your side, do not look inside of yourself. Instead, look to the cross where Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead for your salvation, that you might live forever with God. God came to be with us that we might live forever with him. 
This morning, as every week in this series, I want to invite you to be reminded of that. If you are walking through a season of discouragement, of depression, of the heavy weight of sadness, I want to bring your attention to the cross this morning by inviting you to join us in the prayer chapel after the service to come in, to pray with a pastor, to to sit and take communion alone if you wish to, to be in the presence of God, to remember the cross, to remember that he who did not spare his own son will graciously give you all things. God loves you. He is with you. He will never leave you. He is on your side. In verse nine, it goes on this way. It says, I will say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? So he's mourning, he's in pain, he's suffering, he's in the depth of his depression, but then he keys us into something we must be aware of, that he is being oppressed by an enemy. There's an enemy, and that enemy is oppressing him. That enemy is harassing him. That enemy is taking something that is bad in his life and making it worse. And we as Christians who wanna take the scripture seriously and wanna take our depression seriously must also key into this reality that just as David had an enemy, we too have an enemy. And the scriptures tell us that our enemy is not flesh and blood, like your enemy is not any person in this world. It's not the people out there. Your enemy isn't someone out there. The enemy, it says, is the powers and principalities, the dark forces of evil in this world. Your enemy has a name and his name is Satan. Your enemy has a name and his name is the devil. And I wanna speak to you this morning about this enemy who oppresses you because if you are not aware that you have an enemy and if you are not aware that he is oppressing you and if you are not aware of the ways he is going to do that, he will take your depression and make it infinitely worse. Let me speak to you about the four tactics of the enemy. The four ways he's going to come after you over and over and over again. If you're a baseball fan, here's how to put it. He's a pitcher, he's only got four pitches and he throws them over and over and over and over again because they work. The four tactics of the enemy is a battle for your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. The first is deception. This is the battle for your mind. It is where the enemy will lie to you. He will deceive you. He will convince you of things that are not true. He will tell you that you are no good and no one wants you and you shouldn't even come to church because no one likes you around there. You shouldn't even show up at small group because they're sick of you. He will lie to you. He will plant things in your mind that are not true. And the way we wage and win this battle for our mind is that we turn to the truth of the word of God. We reject the lies of the enemy and we stand firm on the truth of God's word. See, there is a battle going on for your mind. There is a battlefield in your mind and that battle is fought in deception, which is the battle for your mind. The second tactic of the enemy is discouragement. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. It is the heaviness you feel that this is never gonna end. It's always gonna be this way. You feel bummed out. You feel discouraged. You feel overwhelmed because you don't feel strong enough to do this on your own. And the way we fight this battle for our heart is by getting around other believers because I can be discouraged, but then I can be around people who build me up, who encourage me, who challenge me, who pray with me, who stand alongside me. See, discouragement is the battle for my heart and Satan will come after your heart and mind to try to discourage you. It is the tactic of the enemy. Deception is the battle for my mind. Discouragement is the battle for my heart. Temptation is the battle for my strength, for my flesh. Do you know that in your discouragement, in your depression, Satan will try to tell you that the way to numb your pain is to turn to sin, to turn to addiction, to turn to something that is destructive and counter to the holiness of God. And in that temptation, it can seem like you'll get some relief from the depression. So you turn to that thing you know you should not turn to. And the way we fight against temptation is to instead find something better, and that is the holiness and the righteousness of God. 
We reject temptation. We choose Jesus in his way that is better. Satan will come after your strength. That is temptation, the battle for your strength, the battle for your flesh. And then finally, we have accusation. Accusation is the battle for your soul. Satan is called in the scriptures, the accuser of the brethren. And this is what that means. He will point at you and he will say, that woman sinned against God. That man sinned against God. That man has rebelled against the Lord. That woman has rebelled against the God of heaven. And when you sense Satan accusing you, when you sense that you are a sinner before a holy God, your response to Satan ought always be the same. You go, I know I am a great sinner. This is true. But hallelujah, I have a great savior. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead and he is quite able to deal with all my sins. So Satan, you go back to the hell from which you came because my savior has made me whole. That's how we respond. That's how we respond to the accusation of the enemy. We respond to accusation by pointing toward the gospel, by pointing toward the cross. Listen, the psalmist here says that the enemy is oppressing me. And some of you feel like there's this oppression, this constant fight going on in your life. And can I remind you that the reason life often feels like a battle is because it is. There's spiritual battle going on in your life. And if you are blind to what Satan is doing, blind to that spiritual battle, he will win every time. But when I become aware that he is coming after me with deception, with discouragement, with temptation, with accusation, I am now prepared for the battle and he will not win any longer. Verse 10 says these words, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? So we come to this part of the scripture where we see that he is suffering mortal agony. In other words, the pain he is going through is not just run of the mill, average, ordinary pain that we experience. There is a depth of pain and the word mortal agony suggests to us that he is even considering the value of life itself. He has reached the point where he is even considering his mortality. He is considering whether he wants to keep living. And that takes us from depression this morning to another subject we must talk about. And that's the subject of suicide. That is the subject of someone taking their life. I know there's a million things I could say or a million things we could get into this morning, but let me just say a few things clearly from the scriptures. Number one, that like depression, suicide has both physical and spiritual dimensions. Some people want to say that it's just a physical thing. It's just a thing that happens. It's a disease. And if you have it, you're doomed. And we don't believe that. But some people want to say it's just a spiritual issue and a choice. And there's nothing in your body and you should ignore that. We don't believe that. Like depression, it's complicated. It brings together the body and the soul. And it should be addressed as such. The second thing I want to say is that there are faithful believers in the Bible who despair life itself. You'll see this phrase that they don't want to go and keep living. They despaired life itself. They said to God, take from me my life for it is better for me to die than to live. And if I can speak to you this morning, if that thought has ever come into your mind, that does not make you wicked. That does not make you awful. It does not make you gross. It does not make you unwanted by God. Some of the most famous heroes of scripture have despaired life itself. And so I want to encourage you to know that this is not making you strange. It's not making you weird. It doesn't make you not wanted by your God. Your God loves you and he sees you just like he loved and saw these people. He cares. Which leads me to my next thing. I want you to know that there is help and hope available and here for those who are struggling. There's help and hope and healing. It doesn't always have to be this way. There are people who care right here at this church. We want to be with you. We want to help you. 
Would you call our care center? Would you reach out to a counselor? Would you reach out to someone in your life and say, I'm struggling, these thoughts have gone through my mind, would you do something? Some of you know, and maybe some of you don't know, that just recently in our nation, we changed the number that you can call in an emergency. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is now 988. Just like you would dial 911 in a medical emergency, 988. They've received in the first week nearly 100,000 calls of people reaching out for help. I encourage you to know that number, to pass along that number, to be of assistance because there is help and hope and healing available for those who struggle with suicidal thoughts. And then finally, can I speak this over you? If you've known someone who's taken their life, if you've known someone who's gone down that road, perhaps you've been convinced in the Christian world that somehow this is unforgivable or, or that because of that, someone loses their salvation. Let me say as clearly as I can, suicide is not an unforgivable sin and does not rob salvation from the believer. And why do I say that? Because your salvation was never based on your behavior in the first place. It was never based on what you've done. It was always based on who God is and what he has accomplished. And when I read Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, 38 and 39, it says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord that neither life nor death, nor any depth of depression or despair or discouragement or suicide itself will be able to take you or rob you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are hurting, if you're suffering, can I plead with you to reach out today, to talk to us in the lobby, to find one of our pastors, to call that lifeline, to reach out to someone, do not suffer alone because there's hope and there is help and there is healing. We're gonna close this morning in verse 11. It closes out the psalm. It says this, why my soul are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. So again, he's preaching to himself. He's preaching to his soul. He goes, why aren't you getting along with the program? Why are you so downcast? I know you shouldn't be. But then what does he say here? But put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. What is the hope he has? The hope he has is the hope that we should have. It is the confidence that this psalmist has as he puts pen to paper here and is the confidence we should have as he is in the depth of his discouragement, the depth of his depression, the depth of his pain and the depth of his despair. And his confidence is simply this, that it is not always going to be like this. It's not always gonna be like this. And when you're in the depth and the shadow and the valley of the shadow of death, when you're going through depression, it feels like this is gonna go on forever. It's never gonna end. It's never gonna stop. And yet what the psalmist is reminding us is we can put our hope in God because it's not always going to be like this. It's going to get better. It's going to improve. And that is not a wish. It is not a nice thought. It is not positive thinking. It is none of those things. It is us having hope in God because of the promise of God. And here is the promise of God that your depression does not go on forever because there will come a day where Christ Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, he will make war on sin, death, hell, and disease itself. And all of those will be brought to an end. There will come a day where Christ comes to make all things new. And when you turn to the second to last chapter of your Bible, you will read these words. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the old order of things that passed away. There is a day coming where death, pain, crying, tears, depression, anxiety, all of that is gone forever. That day is coming. It does not last forever. What you are walking through, the valley of the shadow of death, the depth of your depression and despair, it has an end date. And that end date has been set by the God of the universe. And so what do we do in the meantime? Between now when we're experiencing this and that day when that end date comes, well, we do exactly what the psalmist said. We praise him. We praise him, not because it's happened, but because we put our hope in him knowing that it will. Listen, this is what it means to have faith in the midst of depression. This is what it means to have faith in the midst of discouragement. Faith means learning to worship in the waiting. It means learning to worship in the waiting. That there's gonna come a day where your depression no longer has grip over you. There's gonna come a day where your despair no longer runs and dominates your life. And between now and then, we choose to praise, we choose to worship. 